Some things in medicine are done by tradition, and some things in medicine are done just because. But that doesn't mean that they're right. In this session, we're going to cover some OB don'ts from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Let's get started now. All right, I have to admit, there are a couple of key phrases, a couple of key words that are trigger words for me that just set me off, especially when they come from other faculty or residents. And those key words are things like, well, that's how I've always done it, or, well, that's what we've always done. That doesn't mean it's right. The Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine has put out a list of things that physicians should question, including some things that we take for granted as routine care. But that doesn't mean that they're evidence-based. So let's get started with this top 15 things that you should not do just because you've always done it that way. All right, without further ado, in no particular order, number one. Don't do an inherited thrombophilia eval for women with histories of pregnancy loss, IUGR, or preeclampsia and abruption. Scientific data supporting a casual association between either MTHFR polymorphism or other more common inherited thrombophilias and adverse pregnancy outcomes, even recurrent pregnancy loss, severe preeclampsia, and IUGR are lacking. So let's say that again. There is no association between recurrent pregnancy loss, IUGR, and severe preeclampsia and inherited thrombophilia. Now, when indicated, antiphospholipid antibodies can be ordered like lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibody, and beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies. Remember that antiphospholipid antibodies can be a cause of recurrent pregnancy loss. However, inherited thrombophilias do not cause recurrent miscarriage. All right, number two, don't place a cerclage in women with a short cervix who have twins. Women with a short cervical length who are pregnant with twins, of course, are at high risk of preterm delivery. But the scientific data, including a recent meta-analysis, has shown that cerclage in this clinical situation not only is not beneficial, but may in fact be harmful because it can actually increase the risk of preterm birth in twins. The third issue has to do with non-invasive prenatal tests. I know this is a touchy subject because people like their nipped testing, but you have to be cautious and don't just over-order non-invasive prenatal tests, especially in the low-risk patient. Now, data for NIPS in low-risk patients has come a long way. And so to date, although most of the original testing was done in high-risk patients, data on the performance of cell-free DNA testing in the general obstetric population is now available. And it's even published in the ACOG Bulletin on screening for fetal aneuploidy. However, the sensitivity and specificity in the general non-high-risk OB population, although it can be similar to levels previously published in that high-risk population, you have to remember that the positive predictive value is lower in the low-risk OB population, and that's because there's a lower prevalence of aneuploidy overall in that group. 
So in low-risk populations, there's a larger proportion of false positive tests among the patients who receive positive testing. This decrease in accuracy is especially concerning when pregnancy terminations have been reported in women who have had a positive non-invasive prenatal test. So this is the clinical pearl. Don't make irrevocable decisions based on a screening test. Remember that cell-free DNA is a screening test and all women with a positive test should have a diagnostic procedure before an irreversible action like pregnancy termination is given. So once again, even though the data does support that NIPS testing in the low-risk population can have overall sensitivity and specificity just about the same as in the high-risk population, the accuracy, the positive predictive value is much lower. So don't make final decisions, especially in the low-risk population, based only on cell-free DNA positive results. We are on to number four. Doesn't this sound like we're doing like a top 20 music countdown? Number four, don't screen for intrauterine growth restriction with Doppler flow studies. Doppler flow studies are only to be used and interpretable in the presence of IUGR. Studies have attempted to screen pregnancies for the subsequent development of IUGR, but this has produced inconsistent results. Furthermore, no standards have been established for the optimal definition of an abnormal test, the best gestational age for the performance of the test, or the technique for its performance. However, once the diagnosis of IUGR is suspected, the use of antenatal fetal surveillance, including uterine artery umbilical Doppler flow studies, is of course beneficial. Number five, don't use progesterone for preterm birth prevention in uncomplicated multifetal gestations. The use of progestins has not been shown to reduce the incidence of preterm birth in women with uncomplicated multifetal gestation. Number six, don't perform routine cervical length screening for preterm birth risk in asymptomatic women before 16 weeks or beyond 24 weeks of pregnancy. The predictive ability of cervical length measurement prior to 16 weeks of gestation for preterm birth risk assessment is limited. It should be performed when indicated between 16 and 24 weeks of gestation. Routine cervical length screening for preterm birth risk assessment in asymptomatic women beyond 24 weeks has not been proven to be effective. Now, a word of caution here. This is not the case for patients who present with active symptoms of preterm labor for which FFN and cervical length screening can be used as part of that preterm labor evaluation up to about 34 or 35 weeks. This refers to the asymptomatic patient for routine screening. So once again, routine screening using cervical length should be between 16 and 24 weeks only. However, cervical length assessment can be done along with FFN for patients presenting not asymptomatically, but with suspicious symptoms of preterm labor up to 35 weeks. 
Number seven, don't perform antenatal testing on women with the diagnosis of gestational diabetes who are well controlled by diet alone. That's A1 diabetics and those without other indications for testing. Monitoring of glucose levels and maintaining adequate glycemic control for gestational diabetes are paramount to decrease adverse events, including stillbirth. If nutritional modification and glucose monitoring alone control maternal glycemic status such that pharmacological therapy is just not required, then the risk of stillbirth due to uteroplacental insufficiency is not increased. So the use of routine antepartum testing like a biophysical profile or the NST in the absence of other comorbidities is not indicated, once again, for well-controlled gestational diabetics that use diet alone, remember those are A1 diabetics, then antenatal testing is not required. Hey, we're making progress. We're on number eight. Number eight, don't place women, even those at high risk for preterm birth or those who have high blood pressure issues, on strict activity restriction like bed rest. There are no studies documenting an improvement in outcome in women at risk for preterm birth or for blood pressure maintenance on strict bed rest. Actually, bed rest deconditions the patient and places them at risk for DVT and other thrombophilic complications. Number nine, don't order serum aneuploidy screening after cell-free DNA aneuploidy screening has already been done. Serum biochemistry and cell-free DNA are both screening tests for fetal aneuploidy. When low-risk results have already been reported on either test, there is limited clinical value of also performing the other screen. While serum screening may identify some aneuploidies that weren't detected by cell-free DNA, the yield is too low to justify this test if cell-free DNA screening has already been performed. Number 10. Don't perform maternal serological studies for CMV or TOXO as part of routine prenatal labs and don't order serological testing for herpes simplex virus in pregnancy. They're just not needed. Routine serological screening of pregnant women for cytomegalovirus, toxo, or even HSV is not recommended due to poor predictive value of these tests and the potential for harm due to false positive results. Serological screening during pregnancy for both diseases like CMV or toxo or even for HSV should be reserved for situations in which there is clinical or ultrasound suspicious of maternal or fetal infection. I told you at the beginning of this session that we're going to cover the top 15 don'ts by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. But we're going to stop here at number 10. We're going to cover number 11 through 15, the last five, on another podcast. Yeah, remember, that's called The Hook for you to listen to the next session. We've covered 1 through 10 in no particular order. Once again, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine has called us to question some things we do out of reflex or out of routine habit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you next time for number 11 through number 15.